we're going to get started. Okay, we have a pretty short announcement list here under Family News. August 3rd is Camp Night at 7 o'clock in the Sanctuary. And August 7th is the baby shower for Emily and Sean Katora at 2 p.m. in the North Lobby. And they're registered at Target and Pottery Barn Kids. That's what you have to do, I guess, if you're going to have a baby during construction, is you have to have your shower, not in the gathering room, but in the lobby. Okay, and then family prayer concerns for this week. Bob Brandon is recovering at home. Catherine Broadway has been diagnosed with aggressive cancer. Christine Dillon, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, is the sister of Martha Brandon recovering from open heart surgery on July 22nd. And Becca Doris um, appreciates our prayers as she is continuing to suffer from multiple health problems. Okay, let's open with a prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come here today and worship you, to fellowship with our church family, and to study more about um, the history and the culture that influenced Jesus' teaching. Please help us to learn more about the city of Jerusalem today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome back to another week. Uh, last week, we previously, on death and resurrection of the Messiah, we talked, so we had two sessions, we kind of pushed them together to make sure that we got all everything in by the end of the summer. Uh, so last week was a whole lot of video we didn't leave a whole lot of time for conversation, so we thought what we'd do this week is leave a little bit of time to kind of un unpack and decompress from last week. So I just a couple of images that maybe help to uh, help us remember what happened last week. Will you write on the board? Will I write on the do board? Do we have a marker? We do have a marker. Okay. Um, oh, so yeah. did you start talking mm -hmm. some of those things? Actually, all of them. Okay, so the, the two images on the left were from the first part of the lesson, Caesarea Philippi, and we talked about how the people in this region worshiped fertility gods, and we also talked about the temple in Jerusalem. That was the second half of the lesson. So let's first go back to Caesarea Philippi and think about the images of the gates of hell, and then there were um, carvings and statues of some of the fertility gods, Baal, for example. Which images in that video, like the flowing water, the cave, um, the rock of the gods, the gates of Hades, um, made the greatest impact on you, kind of visually? For example, when we saw this one, to me it looks like a face, and their eyes, and a great big angry mouth. And if I were living in Jesus' time, and I, and I saw that as um, the rock of the gods, the gates of hell, that looks really ominous to me, like going down into this mouth. And um, that's right where Jesus was standing and saying, no, Peter, you're the rock, and upon you I, I will build my church. So what other recollections do you have from that last week? I guess one of the things that impacted me, and I've seen these before, but one of the things that I'm always fascinated by is this, the fact that you have the demoniac 
and all of the confrontations that Jesus had and, and things. And of course, he couldn't go into that area because the people were afraid of him. But then he comes back, he feeds thousands of people there. And there is this incredible thing that for the next, at least for the next four centuries, there were leaders from those churches that were contributing to the foundation of theology for the church. And that came from these, and, and especially I think it came from this one man who had been demon-possessed, who knew very little about Jesus, but shared what he knew. And then God was able to utilize that. And the fact that he wanted to go with Jesus at that point, he said, and Jesus said, no, no, you've got your job to do now. You've got to go tell the world about your, or your city mm -hmm. about um, you know, what I've done for you. Awesome. Last week, Ray Vanderland also talked about, in this part, um, kind of the concept of offensive versus defensive. Um, so let's talk for a minute about, do you think the church is, in modern times, primarily on the, the offensive or the defensive, and how do you see that? Can you think of examples of, of both? I was listening to a podcast the other day. I listened to too many to even know where I heard it. But, you know, the speaker was talking about this particular region. Good people didn't go there, you know. And here was Jesus not only going there, but he was making, you know, a real statement of the future of his kingdom there. And, you know, one of the, the, the analogies it drew from it is, there, there's a tendency to stay where it's safe and cloistered, but we don't see that as an example from Jesus. You know, the, the, the you know Jesus and, and his followers were so bold, and they went where, you know, the, the phrase where angels you know appeared to tread. You know, they they were going places and doing things that were on the offensive. And that's the example that we have. Now, do we do that? There are great examples of us doing that today. There are also a lot of examples of being timid and cloistered. And, uh, you know, I think if we, if, if I, in my most faithful times, is when I am out there being bold, <coughs> but appropriately so, not forcing my thoughts down someone else's throat but just saying by my life here's who I am mm -hmm. and being a spirit of attraction not a spirit of you know forceful condemnation you know my, my thought on that one is going to this area so there's specifically we talked about pan but a polytheist area it sounded like he just took the disciples there and he was with them and teaching them. They went somewhere. 
I don't know if they were, I wonder if they were, if there was any hostility towards them. I, I would probably guess not from a community that's like, hey, your gods are cool, my gods are cool, whatever. So I, I wonder, did he go to, you know, he went here and flipped tables and was very expressive to those he might have disagreed with. Whereas here, it, it felt like it was important to be, like he was there. And maybe there were people there worshiping Pan, doing what they felt was right, and that they saw this group, like, well, they're interesting people, I wonder what they're up to. So I think our, maybe sometimes we're called to go and affect change, maybe, in another culture, but we're also called to go be, be, right? And that's what I'm trying to get to, is they were just, they were there and they were there. They didn't go there, they didn't bring signs or they didn't point <laughs> fingers at people or something exactly. like that, you know, like, we're just there. Dale. Uh, just a couple of things off of what he was saying. And uh, I remember m the image that I took most from, from the Gates of Hell portion was map. Uh, they had to go a long way mm -hmm. out of the way. I mean, they went to the headwaters of the Jordan, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't recall them doing anything else in that area, but they went specifically to take this snapshot, basically, and get it into, into the scripture, essentially, of going to the root of polytheism, as you said, and make this statement about the church. Like went out of their way almost. Yes, went way out of their way. Um, and then the second thing, if I can remember. Oh, one thing that I'm doing, and I'm not trying to shoot my own horn or anything, but I was, I've been really convicted over the last year or so about not displaying my faith in you know, public settings. So I'm doing, trying to do that more with work, having management, so it's kind of weird. So I'm doing it very subtly, um, just in, in presentations, throwing in a scripture or scriptural reference or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, saying prayers more whenever we eat together. Um, yeah. And, you know, just, I'm not, I'm, I probably tell people I'm not trying to hit the world ahead with it, but just displaying it more. It's who you are. Yeah, as not, not trying to distance myself from it, but, you know, just say, this is me, and if people want to talk about it, they can, but, you know, I've had a couple of comments that uh, some of the folks Appreciate it. That's awesome. But I haven't had any comments that people dislike. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. One, one of the things that uh, I think is worth noting, I don't know if you've seen the pictures that are downstairs around the foyer, and that is the uh, Potter Creek is supporting a ministry that is going to people that have never heard the gospel in Niger. Uh -huh. And these are areas where few churches that they had there were burned last year. And it's an area where white guys like me can't just walk in and, and be there. Yeah. And so there's African evangelists that we support that are doing church planning in those areas. And so there's two ways that that, you know, there are areas where Jesus, like with the demoniac, Jesus was that was not his ministry and yet he empowered the demoniac then with his story then to do what he needed to do. And that happens today. And it happens with our congregation. And uh, those people, especially the ministers that are doing the church planning, really need to be continued to be lifted up in prayer because it's dangerous. Man, the uh, the first part 
Gates of Hellfire. Was that, do you know what year that was from? That video? 90s. Yeah, it seemed like vintage Fangerland. Much younger and darker. <laughs> right, right. So right. I just, I wonder if you would still, you know, like today, he mentioned colleges specifically. I wonder if today you would feel any differently about colleges <coughs> and how they're doing. They kind of proved it all, you know, if you were to kind of be able to interview him now, <coughs> not specifically as far as being like, we go to colleges and, you know, we just kind of stay here and right. safe and everything. And right, that whole thing. He got kind of preachy a little bit, didn't he? And right. he is a professor at a Christian university. Uh, I can't remember which one it is. York or Wheaton? Not no. sure. And these were recently remade. Like he recently went and redid all this stuff? No, but I mean, like the temple scene and everything was done years ago. Yeah. But in the presentation that we did was, I think, just a couple years old now. Because hmm. they reused some of that material and put it into a nestled it into a new thing. Oh. So I, I think probably he continues to think of around the same thing. Well, the the. And that part really resonated with me because I'm a teacher and I work with students at a lot of um, Christian schools in town. And so I can see some of the schools that have more of the withdrawing kind of cloistering mentality. Like we, we take students here to protect them from the big bad world. And then I work with kids at other Christian schools who are very um, much about like, this is how our faith um, informs our study of academics and, and they're equipping their students to be bold and go right back out to their community. Right. So The school I went to in Seattle, SPU, their motto or vision or whatever is engaging the culture, changing the world. And it's debatable whether you're able to do that, but I mean, at least that's, you know, that's a goal that seems more in line with Jerusalem side. That was the second part. Um, yeah. 
So Ray spent a lot of time with this really awesome model of the Temple Mount. And when he was describing various features of it, construction and use and so forth, what, how did that change your perception um, or your understanding of what you have already read in the Bible? I had no idea, and, and this just like awakened me. I never could figure out why the New Testament Christians were worshiping in the temple. I thought, you're going to tick everybody off, you know? But there was a section of the temple reserved for any religious group to practice their faith. <coughs> that was just something eye-opening to me. Well, and I mean, for the first many decades, there, Christianity wasn't Christianity. It was just a sect of Judaism. Right. I was struck by, and you can see it better in this one, when you look at the city as a whole and the various, like David City and old and new sections and the, um, the, the shops and the economic part, just how much space physically the temple takes up. Like it was, it was visually um, up on the hill and super important and it just took up a lot of space compared to everything else. So that kind of tells you how, what emphasis they placed on it. Proportionately. I think the, one of the things that hit me as I, I've seen this and others of his, and, and in fact, uh, that and Josh mentioned Sephoris, is and normally I didn't think of it in terms, I thought of more of a, a rural country scenario. And not a lot of sophistication, but I mean, you have Greeks and Romans living in Jerusalem. You have his ministry in Galilee. I mean, half, at least half the population there was probably Greco-Roman, and, and it was a very sophisticated area. And I would argue that as far as cultural goes, it was probably as culturally sophisticated as the time that we lived in. And. Uh, that, that's just an interesting perspective because when I grew up, I always thought of these were all Jews, they were all, you know, and it was right. just a very different kind of a picture that I had. And he pointed to the construction of the temple as well, these huge rocks, and you know, how did they do this? This is so amazing, kind of like, you know, how did they build the pyramids with without modern machinery and, um, you know, it, it looks like they built on top of temple on top of temple. And, mm -hmm. You know, somebody back then, that, that's what I think too, is like, these, these guys were just kind of crude, you know, they didn't really know too much about, other than, you know, what they can see, but the, you know, the construction of it and the culture, um, just from what Vanderland was saying, is just incredible. And if I remember correctly, they didn't use chisels and hand tools like that on site. They did it all at a quarry and then brought it in. That's yeah. a lot of impressive engineering. Yeah. And up that hill. Yeah, and up the hill. That's right. So, toss something out. Here's, I have a thought. I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't feel like it's uh, orthodox. So, here's my thought. Maybe test me and challenge me and correct me on this one. I think Herod or Herodians tend to get portrayed as evil, against God's will. Uh, they're kind of the bad guys. They're some of the bad guys in the story. 
reading, there's a lot of actually really good material in this study guide. It's really good. And just other stuff, I get, I get a different impression that Herod was uh, Hellenized, and Herod, had his political view was, uh, we're not going to be an independent, sovereign nation anymore. That's not our reality. Instead, I'm going to cooperate with the Greeks. I'm going to cooperate with the Romans. And he was able to, the Romans sort of blessed him as the you know, lowercase king, if I didn't like that word, of Judea. And they helped him fund. He took his resources that he gained through political allegiances, and he built this, right, for the people of Jerusalem. So he, he, he said, look, here, here's, here's how this is going to work. I'm not going to I'm not going to spend money on wars. I'm not going to spend money fighting these people because that's pointless. Instead, I'm going to I'm going to have peace with them, and I'm going to use that peace to build a beautiful temple. Everybody come and worship, which to me doesn't really seem like he's a black and white evil bad guy. My my way off. I think he was political for sure, but I think you know he also was going to build a temple in Samaria, so. He wanted to unite the people, but he knew that they didn't have control. A pragmatist. Yeah. More pragmatist than on, from the religious side. Yeah. yeah. Hey, let's all get along and let's see how, how we can do this best. All right. Let's move into the new one. Shoot, shoot arrows at me, and maybe I'll get letters from elders next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking notes. <laughs> skip over this. I, I, it's part of a readout that I've man, I thought about. We can, we can just, if you just read the Bible, just only read the Bible, disregard archaeological evidence, disregard historical evidence, disregard <coughs> other literary sources, and you can read this and it's cool, right? You just keep going. Yeah, Jesus, you know, hey, my apostles, uh, you guys are learning stuff, and I'm going to build my kingdom on earth based on you guys. And you can just move right past that. Or you might know that these are a couple of verses that the Catholic Church takes as a foundation for this. Peter was the first pope, and Peter was handed the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the, I don't know what, the royal crest of pope. Papal right? seal. Yeah, and those are the keys, right? And so this, this is an important element to that. And I've known that for ages. So when I read this verse, this is what I think about. Well, now I feel like my mind has changed even more because I see this. And I think, I think, wow, he was there. Like, they were standing right there in that place when he said it in the mouth, like Mary said, the, the little entrance to Hades thing. And, you know, I think a lot of us know probably, like, Peter, the Greek, Petra. So I'm going to change your name to Petra, Peter, rock. This is the rock, and I'm here at the rock of this gate. And, like, just, there's so, there, so there's, there's this verse that's great read just the Bible, or if you know a little bit of history, there's there's nuance and everything in it of the history of Christianity, but, and even more cooler than that, right in that moment, like, just just for the people that were right there, there's a whole lot of context that is just so interesting, I think, you know, thank you, Ray, for helping us unpack that timeliness, that immediacy of what was going on. These gates of Hades will not overcome it. Yeah. Cool. 
Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about the city of Jerusalem today. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And this segment really gets more into kind of the opulence and the, the impressive aspects of the city. switch over to the video. Finally hit the lights. Thanks. Let's hope this works. Not that <laughs> one. <laughs> the ancient land of Israel is a testimony and evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country. A testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. Okay, we're standing at the base here of the corner of Herod's temple platform. If you remember on the model, it was at this point, maybe 100 feet or more above our head, that there was a tower, and on the corner of that tower was the place where the priest went to blow the shofar. In fact, the stone there that was found that said the place of the blowing of the trumpet actually was thrown down and found below here in this pit where it had fallen from up above. And here you get a sense of the size and the glory of the stones that Herod put here. Now up above us here, you see the spring of an arch. That was the arch called Robinson's Arch. That arch came out behind us. From there, the stairway came this direction toward me, descended down here into the lower city so that you could walk on down toward the Tyropian Valley or around the corner here to the left of that broad staircase to get in where the pilgrims went in. So there were two exits or entrances on this level. One was here, came down this way, the other one, uh, Wilson's Arch, came across on the bridge to the upper city. Here in a pile, not, not ever having been excavated, just left the way the excavators found it, are the stones that the Roman soldiers and engineers threw off the top at the time they destroyed the city. Josephus says that hundreds of thousands of people died in that slaughter. I just want you to feel the awful terror of this place as those Romans came here and spent months systematically destroying and undoing what Herod had spent years and the Jews had spent years building. And I think Jesus weeping over the city was his awareness, as his insight into the future, that this was about to happen. city as the place where he would live in Jerusalem. On the western edge, overlooking the Hinnom Valley, Herod built a magnificent palace where he spent his time when he was in Jerusalem. On the northern end, at the point where his palace or this part of the city was the weakest, he had built a large fortress. And to protect that fortress, he had built a series of three towers in a triangular shape the largest, the tallest, being 150 feet high, he had named after his brother, Fazael. 
The one to the right, he had named after an unknown friend named Hippicus. We don't know anything more about him. And to this side, the very graceful and beautiful tower, he named after his favorite wife, Mariamna, the woman that he himself had had strangled because he doubted her faithfulness to him. The palace itself is divided into two parts. And in between the two, a series of gardens and of pools, a variety of exotic kind of plants and trees that Herod had put in there, typically Herodian. A couple of things that happened here we can say with some certainty from the Bible. The first one is at the beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus. The wise men came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem because the star that they had seen indicated to them that a king had been born in this part of the world. And they came to the one they thought would know the most, that being the king of the Jews at the time, Herod. Herod, of course, was very upset about it, and eventually the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem results. The other event comes at the end of Jesus' life. Herod the Great, the one who built this magnificent city, had died, and his son, Herod Antipas, was here for Passover. Now, we don't know for sure that Herod was staying in this palace, but it seems logical because it was the Herodian palace, after all. And at that time, the Galilean teacher, Jesus, had been arrested. He had been taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, who probably resided in that huge fort there just to the northern end of the Temple Mount. Pilate sent him here on the night of his arrest and interrogated by Herod and then eventually sent back to Pilate who condemned him to death. So we can imagine at the end of his life, uh, Jesus being brought here and having an audience with Herod. Here, the large palace of the high priest Caiaphas, or at least so we think, don't know that 100%, but very likely Caiaphas's palace looked very much like this. Caiaphas was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the high priest, the chief priest. Uh, he was a Hellenistic individual, was happy with the Roman and Greek lifestyle, and as such was considered to be illegitimate in the priesthood by many religious Jews, such as, for example, the Essenes. Archaeological excavations have revealed a number of beautiful mansions belonging to families of Sadducees from the time of Jesus. One of them, recently opened to the public, probably belonged to a priestly family and possibly even the family of the high priest. While no one is saying that this was the home of the high priest Caiaphas, it's possible. At the very least, it helps us to appreciate the context to which Jesus was brought as he was interrogated by the Jewish priests prior to his crucifixion. That we're in a mansion that dates back to the period of Jesus' time. Uh, when Jesus was on earth, when the disciples were on earth, people were living in this mansion very likely belong to a priestly family based on the number of ritual baths that are in here. Um, also other kinds of finds in terms of uh, bowls and dishes with information on them indicating they belong to priestly families. Another thing I think that strikes me is the opulence of the place. Uh, you see the mosaic floors, the wine cellar over there filled with uh, jars still standing there, the beautiful stoneware tables which were ceremonially clean because they didn't absorb material like clay did. Um, the bowls, the plaster walls up here painted different colors that look uh, so beautiful, so glorious. Bathrooms with mosaic floors, absolute beauty. Now actually there are three major walls in this part of the city of Jerusalem. The first wall goes from the towers, Herod's towers, Herod's fort, to the Temple Mount itself and actually connects there on the Temple Mount next to the arch that carries the bridge across. And that's called the first wall because it was the first wall to be built. And at that time, the whole city of Jerusalem was in this direction and over there on the Temple Mount. 
The second wall, which was built by Herod the Great, the same one responsible for most of this city, is the one that begins here by Herod's towers and goes primarily to the north as it covers around the business district and the northern part of the city. Eventually it comes back and joins with the fort just to the north of the Temple Mount called the Fort of Antonia. Shortly after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Herod Agrippa built the third wall. Now, within each of the sections of the city enclosed by those walls, Jesus had some interaction in his ministry. Let's talk first about the section inside of the second wall, between the second wall and the Temple Mount, called the Business District. Probably the dominant feature in that section of the city is that huge fortress with the four giant square towers on each corner with a broad staircase coming down toward the business section of the city. When Herod initially built this city, he built it under the authority and the power of the Romans. The Romans had given him the right to be king. They had put him in power. They had provided troops and funds to enable him to control this area. And so he had to build a place that was appropriate for the Roman garrison. He named that glorious fortress after his patron, Mark Anthony, and it became known as the Antonium. It's in the western half that most scholars believe Jesus was taken for his trial before Pontius Pilate. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was taken to be tried before Pilate to a place called Lithostratus, or the pavement. Very likely that pavement is in the Antonia Fortress, just inside of those gates that stand at the top of that long, broad staircase. If that's true, Jesus himself was taken there before Pilate, probably bound, standing before him. And those who accused him stood out on the stairway. And the trial went on back and forth between those Sanhedrin officials, those Sadducees, and Pilate himself, who had to make the decision. Eventually, Pilate decided that it was in his best political interests to sentence an innocent person to death. And so he listened to those who accused Jesus, and he had Jesus flogged, and he sent him out to die. The Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches us, that Jesus was both the Passover sacrifice and the scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat was an animal that was taken to the temple, and following a ceremony, the priest would symbolically transfer the sins of the people to the head of the goat, and the goat would be taken outside of the city to the east, to the wilderness, to die. And in that way, show the people that the sins of the people had been carried away. They'd been taken away out into the desert, and they would not any longer interfere with the relationship between God and the people. So the book of Hebrews says Jesus is our scapegoat. He's taken outside of the city wall. He's taken outside to die. And in that sense, God is illustrating to us that our sins, too, have been completely removed. They're no longer affecting our relationship with God. According to Roman law, executions took place in very public places, along city streets or outside of city gates. And often, city gates were the choice the Romans used. Over near the garden tomb, over near that location, which some see as the possible place where Jesus was crucified, is the Damascus Gate, the present location of the Damascus Gate. Right there, near that location, was a very large public gate, the main north entrance into the city of Jerusalem. sitting on the gate that was the Damascus gate. And again, remember how we understood that a gate is like a room inside the city? You're sitting on the roof of that gate room. The main northern entrance of the city of Jerusalem is right here, right? 
Second thing I thought I'd point out is, is you just stand up here and you listen. You have the music, the sounds of people. You look, you have the dress, the smells of the food and the spices, and just this sense of culture. Very similar kind of feelings to what Jesus would have had. If Jesus was taken to be crucified, probably through the northern gate, he would have come down the street here. Now realize his street is below, but this would be the kind of route, and not too dissimilar day. This is Friday, the holy day for the Muslim. So in the morning, everybody's out buying the last things they need for their meal and so on, and it's a big crowd, and that would have been similar to Jesus, except he was here on the Passover probably. Same kind of feel. That's why it's so neat to be here on Friday, because that's market day. And I just look down there, and it seems so foreign, so curious. And then I think of Jesus' reaction to crowds like that, of his sense of compassion. And somebody said last night, you know, can I feel compassion for people that are that different the way he did? We're down in an archaeological dig, down much closer to the level of Jesus' time. And what you see here is the main northern gate from the Roman period, technically from the Roman period following the time of Jesus. After this city was destroyed in 70, and then again in 134, the Romans rebuilt this gate. However, we can say that the gate is built on the approximate location, following the same general outline, and certainly with Herodian stones. So I won't tell you that Jesus touched this stone in this place. What I will tell you is that what you're looking at is the gate that looks the same as what Jesus looked at, coming from the same place. Now you can hear from the bustle that the city gate was always a very, very busy place. <coughs> there actually were three openings. This small one here, a much larger one in the middle, and then another small one on the outside. So actually you're looking at the little gate, if you will, of a huge, massive gate. Notice the size of the column. Maybe three feet in diameter that would have gone, you can see where it would have gone up the side, and another one here. And imagine the glory of that Roman gate that one day about 2,000 years ago, busy day like this, was the site where a condemned prisoner was taken out carrying a cross to be killed somewhere in the immediate area here. out of the Damascus gate so we're just outside the city gate here and then if you came just across the road you'd come to that quarry and very likely they would put the victim down below in the quarry and stone them to death from the top of the quarry now to some people's minds that makes this a logical place for the crucifixion but the view is in Roman law you executed people in public places by main roads or main gates particularly in places that the local population considered to be disgraceful. So maybe this is a logical choice. And I'm not saying it happened here. I'm saying I'm trying to give you an impression of what it was like. So when Jesus was taken to be crucified, whether it was this spot or another, he came through a busy city street, out of main gate, and just outside the gate he's crucified. city of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, the place where God had originally spoken to Abraham and 
Isaac, where God had commissioned David and Solomon to build the temple for his Jewish people, where God's presence had lived among his people for more than a thousand years. It's amazing that this place that had such an impact in human history now becomes the place where the kingdom of God is extended beyond the Jewish people to those of us who are Gentiles, as we have become part of that kingdom. We are now the new temple as God's spirit fills us and lives within us to bring his kingdom beyond the boundaries of this city to all the people of God's world. questions from the book that felt thought-provoking, but certainly more interested in your guys' reaction to what we just saw. It's uh, interesting, so many of the depictions <coughs> of the crucifixion of Christ, thinking of Golgotha, a place of the school, it's sort of outside of the city, uh, on a hill, that is uh, away from the hospital, and his indication is it was more likely right out the city gates so that people would see him. It's just a different impression of that's the part that kind of confused me. I didn't know how to reconcile like the historical evidence that he's citing along with what the Bible says about Golgotha. Where was that? Well I think we had there are there are if I understand correctly, I mean there are several different places that are like there's a there's a little church there, or there's something of a monument to a a likely place of the crucifixion and a different likely place of the tomb, and like there's n more than one of those possibilities. There were multiple. When we went, there were just like there's like seven churches in the tomb. They mm -hmm. all say that that's where Jesus was born, but there's one that's more likely than others based on all the historical facts. At least that's what Uh, Let's see a hand. What do you think it would have been like to have been an ordinary Jewish person living in the city at that time? I don't know where I got this, but maybe, maybe Randall. Uh, but there were series of people that said they were the Savior yes. over and over and over. And uh, I think the people were tired. They were maybe a little pushed off from all these zealots saying that they were the Savior over and over and over again. I think people were just tired of it uh, in general. I think, so I think, you know, this is my perception from what Randall called it, but Jesus was just, ah, there's another one. Coming, just, you know, mind or 
think if I had been an ordinary person trying to go about and do my shopping and there was someone who had claimed to be the Messiah cru mm -hmm. crucified right there on the main road, I would have just kept my head down and tried to mind my own business. <laughs> and uh, that's the point, right? <laughs> well, and especially since the, you know, you've probably grown up uh, reading and hearing that this Messiah is coming to save us. And you're, you've got these images in your head, just like the disciples of this king, and you know he's going to come and defeat the Romans or whoever it might be, and and then you're like, this is no, and right? Like, Let me just get my grapes and go home. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. All right. So. That's a good point. Well, like you I'll let you wrap it up. If Herod was, you know, he's like, you know, we're going to get along with the Romans, and look, we built this magnificent temple. Maybe the people were kind of in that same thing, like. We just go along, we get along, we're going to get a big temple, we're going to be left alone. Yeah. And then it was proven when they started forcing around in 65 or whatever. Right. Here comes the army and crap. Right. I mean, people are kind of tired of that. Yeah, we, we probably need to wrap it up, but Thank yeah, that, that's along the lines of like, the Romans didn't just like and tear down the city. It's that there were there was violence that they couldn't control. Like it had gotten so bad that they they had just I, there's nothing else that we can do here. We're tearing down the temple. We're tearing down the city. All you people have to leave. We're renaming it. Like that's the only option they felt like they had. Okay, thanks, Dave. Thank you all Thank so you. much for being here. <laughs>